Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. David Hirsch, the founder and owner of Hirsch Vineyards in the Sonoma Coast of California. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine today. Nice to be here. So your dad used to sell books. That's right. Uh, I grew up in a house with uh, 30,000 books. Uh, Originally, uh, we were in uh, the Bronx, and uh, my father sold uh, to scholars and libraries. These were all uh, used books. They weren't rare, but they were were, uh, difficult to find. And, of course, this is back in the 40s and 50s, uh, before the Internet and search engines. So uh, he would go uh, down to 4th Avenue in Manhattan, and sometimes I'd trek along with him. And 4th Avenue at that time had uh, many uh, secondhand bookstores. And... uh, he would go to England. I remember the first time uh, we took him out to uh, Idlewild. It was before uh, the airport was known as JFK. Standing there in the terminal and watching that early 707 takeoff, that was interesting. He had his contacts in the uh, United Kingdom, and a months later, uh, trunks of books would show up and course that was my job was to unpack them and alphabetize them and he wouldn't send out a book that had any uh markings in it some of which were in pen so i had to stand there for hours uh diligently er erasing the markings and to this day uh even reading a cheap paperback i find it difficult to turn back the edge of the page to mark where i am because uh a love and respect for the printed word was uh, branded into me. Your dad had been through the Great Depression. Yeah. My parents, uh, they were both uh, children of immigrants. And as a matter of fact, my mom, uh, she was born in 1914 in Manhattan. And somewhere toward the end of the Great War, they went back to Poland to lodge. And uh, the youngest brother, my uncle Oscar, was born there. And then a few years later, they came back and settled in the Bronx. 
but what we heard every every night at the uh, kitchen table was eat all your food. You didn't know what it was like to go through the depression. You went to College of Columbia. This was in 1962. We were, uh, as a culture, we were just uh, throwing off the uh, the ties of the 50s. Uh, for me, and, and for many of my peers, and especially the beatniks, the 50s were uh, like a time of cultural straitjacket. It was so material and conformist. We felt, uh, especially in the middle class New Rochelle, that we were like sheep being uh, funneled down a way called uh, acceptable, successful, and ordinary. So I fell into that trap and wound, wound up at Columbia Upper West Side of Manhattan, and the influence there was the best anecdote. We had uh, amazing professors. So I had people like Lionel Trilling, Moses Hattis, Eric Bentley, who uh, infused in me a, a deeper appreciation of Western culture and especially the creative aspect of it. So this was the sort of uh, experience that uh, I found in the school. But then, of course, we were uh, five subway stops away from Midtown and the amazing jazz scene. You could uh, go into Birdland. I think it was five bucks maybe to get in, maybe. And then you would stand there at the bar and there would be uh, John Coltrane playing with Miles Davis. An extraordinary experience. And uh, it was so intimate. And you took a trip out west with some Columbia friends. In school, to make money, uh, I had a full scholarship. But to afford uh, peripheral things, I worked in uh, student laundry and sold... Uh, refreshments at Baker Field for the football games. So uh, the laundry was uh, basically a, a Mormon cartel. Columbia had a long uh, connection to uh, Mormon communities in Utah and Idaho. So th they ran their laundry. And uh, come Christmas, I believe it was in my sophomore year, 63, they were all heading home. They had a car, and I got to ride with them. And they dropped me off. I, I believe it was Pocatello, Idaho, from where I, I hitchhiked to uh, to California. And uh, it's hard to understand today what America roads were like in '63, because the interstates they were just being uh, built on the East Coast. But everywhere else, you traveled on the old U.S. highways, which meant that you went from town to town, you got picked up by local people. The accents, how the language was spoken in each place was unique. There were people, I remember when I went up to Alaska, they would take me home, 
just to hear me talk. So I got a ride with a trucker into uh, Reno. And the guy was, he was a very friendly guy, he gave me a long ride, I think from Provo, Utah, up into uh, Reno. And it was the middle of the night. And he said, uh, he said, I'll, I'll get your room in the motel here. And he comes down. He says, well, they only have one room, so we'll have to sleep together. At which point my antenna went up. And I said, well, I think I'll just get going. It was like midnight. So I get back out on uh, US 40. And eventually this pickup truck stops. Turns out the guy's drunk. And we're driving over a torturous road through the Sierras. Guy's going about 40 miles an hour. It scared the bejickens out of me. But we made it down to Sacramento where he, uh, this is in December. And uh, I get out there. Takes a couple of hours and a, and a semi stops. Takes me all the way to, to Novato in Marin County. By this time, it's like 10 in the morning. And I get out. And it's uh, probably 60 degrees, sun's out. And I thought I'd uh, stepped off a truck that had delivered me into the Garden of Eden. And that was, I think that was it. I became a California person. And you spent some time working on some ore boats. I uh, dropped out of school a few months after, uh, in January of uh, 64 and began uh, rambling across the country. I was uh, back out in California, and I saw an ad in the paper to drive uh, Avis car, a uh, rental car, up to Anchorage. And the deal was that I would pay the gas and oil, and they would reimburse me when I got up there. So I'm up on the Alcan, and Easter of... Uh, uh, 1964, and I remember the day very specifically because it was a tremendous earthquake up in Alaska, and the tsunami wiped out Crescent City, which I passed through on the way up. But in the middle of the Alcan, uh, up in uh, the Yukon Territory, I think it was, a semi came out of a snowstorm and rammed the uh, rental car I was driving. So it was uh, drivable, but it was smashed up pretty bad. The, the trucker was very helpful, gave me his insurance information. But when I arrived in Anchorage, the uh, company refused to reimburse me, said they couldn't collect uh, from a Canadian trucker. So I was left in Anchorage with uh, $18 in my pocket. I found a boarding house, a dormitory-style boarding house with uh, multiple bunk beds, mostly uh, construction and migrant workers. So I'm stuck there with uh, this $18. I bought a bunch of crackers and peanut butter. And finally, uh, one of the fellows in the dormitory said they're hiring at the railroad. And uh, so I became uh, a railroad worker. And re really enjoyed it. I was two years up in Alaska. And uh, after the earthquake, part of the railway and the highway uh, south of Anchorage towards Seward had sunk down below the high tide level. 
So we, we were backing the, uh, the ballast train underwater. You know, we'd go down the tracks as far as it could, and we would uh, empty the, uh, the dumpsters, and then we'd uh, jack up the rails, tamp in uh, the gravel under the ties, and keep doing it over and over again. We worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day throughout the summer until it got cold. And then uh, we, I was on the extra gang, which was a group of about seven or eight workers spent the winter shimming up the track because the frost heaves would uh, make it uh, impassable. So we uh, leveled it all off. And we worked between uh, Fairbanks and uh, Talkeetna, which is up on the Susitna River. And it was beautiful. It was like a completely different way of life. And was part of the experience that uh, showed me how important nature was to me. It's indescribable, uh, the magnificence of the beauty there. We would see the Mount McKinley and Hunter in the distance, the Zizitna River. I remember going up one day to uh, somewhere on the Yukon River and uh, got out, got off the train and 70 below. You went out to take a piss, and uh, before the urine hit the ground, it would be a a yellow uh, frozen stream. After Alaska, I wound up in Duluth and got a job on the ore boats. Lake Superior, during the uh, late fall, is like an ocean. We were out one day, uh, I believe the waves were like 60 feet. Here's like a 550-foot-long ore boat. And, uh, I mean, we we were diving around. We still were washing down the decks. It was a load of taconite, which is that iron ore that we were taking down to a steel mill on uh, south of Chicago. And it's this uh, gritty dust, so you, you have to wash it all down, uh, get the decks clean. and. You know, the wind is howling, the boat's uh, jumping around, and you're just uh, trying to hang. You know, you got these uh, powerful uh, fire hoses to, to wash everything with, and, you know, you're, you're worried about being thrown overboard. But one, once again, it put me in touch with the, the beauty and grandeur of America. Just couldn't have been a lot of other Columbia kids out working on the railroad and the ore boats. I mean, it seems like you were searching for something. Well, the usual way of putting it is we have a beacon in us that's looking for a place to land, looking for a safe harbor. My own experience, especially uh, in relation to... uh, finding the uh, place that's now called Hirsch Vineyards is that there's a lighthouse out there that's calling us to shore. And clearly to me, I didn't find it, it found me. But it's a long road for many of us. Uh, A fortunate few uh, find their safe harbor early in life and uh, you know, if circumstances are appropriate, they have a rich and uh, varied, uh, deep life. 
But for someone like myself, I had to go through uh, step after step. I was a wanderer. I was a storyteller, did some writing. And my uh, take on the whole thing was that I had to go through a period of purgation to find uh, the place where I am now comfortable and feel uh, I can work out uh, everything I need to for the rest of my life. I settled in Santa Cruz in 68. I was with uh, a lady uh, I'd met in New York. And on the way there, we uh, decided to make a tour of Mexico. And she had a really good eye. And we bought a bunch of uh, handicrafts, rugs, some pottery, some jewelry, and uh, took it with us uh, and headed up the California coast. And I had been in Santa Cruz before, and she uh, had gone to school in Palo Alto. So we thought we'd look at Santa Cruz, and if that didn't work out, we'd go up to uh, Palo Alto. Well, we landed in Santa Cruz and, and never left. We got the idea of going back to Mexico and buying uh, some gifts and opening a shop. Uh, in San Francisco, we met a couple who were making these large stuffed uh, pillows with uh, mostly paisley prints. It was called Pasha Pillow. And uh, we thought they were amazing. They were like three by four feet. And it was the perfect furnishing for the 60s. You know, you just kind of lay on the floor and uh, smoked a joint or two and uh, hung out. So we uh, became their uh, distributor in Santa Cruz. We opened a store in Capitola. Capitola was like this. Puerto Vallarta before uh, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor went down there. You know, this beautiful Eden-esque beach town. And, uh, you know, people from San Jose or or the Central Valley would come in the summer. But during the rest of the year, it was totally quiet and tranquil. We had a uh, cabin on the cliff above the ocean completely furnished, utilities paid. There was a tennis court there, El Salto Resort. And uh, the rent in 1968 was an unbelievable $75 a month. So we would uh, open our store. Uh, business was a little bit slow, of course. We'd sit out on the corner with our portable turntable playing the uh, Dylan's Nashville Skyline or the Beatle White Album. And every now and then, an actual customer would drift in. But looking back on it, I have to wonder why we ever left that kind of life because all we had was time. But then, unfortunately, the uh, achiever in me uh, took over and the one store in Capitola became two in uh, Santa Cruz. After that, we opened one on Cannery Row, which, which is an, was another extraordinary place. The canneries had all closed down, but the aquarium hadn't been built yet. Beautiful place. But I couldn't stop there, and we opened the store in uh, San Jose and 
Stockton. And so it started getting out of control and I couldn't stand retail. So uh, I began a wholesale business. And uh, I met a fellow who was a genetic world traveler. And we set up a network of buying uh, folk art and handicrafts around the world. One of our great experiences was to trade in Afghanistan before the communists came in. I mean, this was a culture that went back thousands of years, was so rich and independent. I mean, they, they were mostly nomadic people, but each tribe had a, had a unique cultural expression. And I think we can still see from uh, the contemporary news that one doesn't really uh, get along with the other. So forming an uh, imposed nation state, it was not going to really work in Afghanistan. In order to do business there, you had to uh, include the king as your partner, you know, pay a little bakshish. But the, the handicrafts were just extraordinary. These coochie dresses, I, I can still feel the beautiful uh, mercerized cotton and, and the embroidery, the, the jewelry. These ornate pieces, uh, many of which were given as, as wedding gifts. And we weren't bartering, to, you know, trying to drive the prices down, but just paying what they were asking, you know, $3, $4. And uh, by the time it got to Santa Cruz, uh, they were retailing for like $20. It, it was unbelievable. The, the rugs, just beautiful hand-woven woolen rugs. And of course, uh, the communists came in, and, and that was the end of Afghanistan. So th this uh, network, Thailand, India, North Africa, the trading beads from Morocco, just indescribably beautiful. So. Uh, I went down to Oaxaca and uh, did a lot of trading all throughout Mexico. But Oaxaca had beautiful ethnic clothing, embroidered uh, dresses and, and men's shirts. And that became the feature of the line. So toward the uh, end of the 70s, the chain stores uh, began to erode our business, Pier One, Cost Plus, these kind of people. And of course, when we started, Tourists couldn't get into Kabul, couldn't get down to Oaxaca. But uh, when the air service started, the uh, attraction of what we were doing uh, kind of lost its luster. But we, we saw that the clothing had a tremendous uh, market. And uh, my wife uh, decided to uh, design uh, uh, clothes that would appeal to young working girls. And we had spent a lot of time in, uh, in Europe, especially in France, uh, researching the, the clothing market and realized that there was a untapped latent demand by uh, young working uh, American girls for a fashion statement as long as the clothes were functional. And that's what we uh, set out to design. And I can tell you, it was, it was so difficult trying to get the dinosaurs that would be the major department stores and chains of that time to recognize what their customer really wanted it took us years and uh we nearly went bankrupt but eventually it uh 
became a tremendous success, and uh, it really laid the foundation for what uh, I was able to do at the uh, vineyard later. So Santa Cruz must have been a real scene during that time, right? Unbelievable. Uh, The company called uh, Santa Cruz Imports began in uh, 1978, and uh, we were located in downtown uh, Santa Cruz. I was a big believer in feasts. It was important to me that everyone with with whom we worked, family and and, uh, friends, would get together on a regular basis. And for example, uh, Thanksgiving was was key. The company would buy a bunch of turkeys. People would take them home and cook them, bring uh, potluck dishes. We would rent a uh, a room in the back of a bar or perhaps a hall somewhere. And the warehouse crew would take the afternoon off, uh, sit around the shipping table, and uh, roll joints into water glasses because it was deemed uncivilized during uh, a feast to have to stop a conversation and roll a joint. One year, I remember... Uh, the feast was held in a remote uh, place up on the San Lorenzo River, a rural road, no place to park, but there was nobody up there. And we had uh, entertainment, you know, all, all self uh, done. The food's cooking and people are having a great time. Uh, air's a little uh, cloudy with marijuana smoke. And out of the blue, a highway patrolman shows up, and he looks in, and of course, I'm uh, designated to be the party representative. An officer, what can we do for you? And he says, you know, and he's kind of looking around. I can see he's a little nervous. Uh, Your cars are parked in the road. And I said, oh, officer, don't worry about a thing. We'll we'll take care of it. And kind of uh, pat him on the shoulder and steered him out the door. And that was it. I think he was more anxious to get out of there than we were to get him out of there. So the the best definition I've heard of the 60s is that there was more space between the molecules. And it's almost impossible to convey. I think that's one of the reasons no great book other than the electric Kool-Aid acid test has been written about the 60s because it was pure experience. It's like trying to describe a great wine. Yeah, you can go on and on. You can write books about it, but it can never replace the taste of that fluid going down your throat. So back in the 70s, uh, when we got interested in designing a clothing line, my wife and I, we, we began going to Paris. At that time, I had met a wonderful man named John Hogan, who was the general manager of John Walker and Sons. And they, uh, they had the, the best uh, uh, producers of uh, Bordeaux, Burgundy, and, and the Rhine, I remember, at that time. This is in the 70s. And John took me under his wing and introduced me to, to these wines. And he was one of the first investors in uh, Shalom. One of these uh, anonymous, unsung heroes of the evolution of the California wine business. So uh, he gave me letters of introduction 
in those days, uh, you got a written letter, and then you could go see uh, Aubert de Villain or old Louis Latour. Four or five years, we would uh, finish our business in Paris, get on the Express to Dijon, uh, rattle down uh, to Bone on the uh, local. I had met um, a fellow named uh, Mark uh, Cheviot, and he, I believe uh, he owned the uh, uh, Hotel de la Poste, which had, I believe, the only uh, Michelin star in all of Burgundy in those days. So we would uh, encamp up in the attic. We had an apartment, and we, I'd stay for about a week. And uh, every night uh, we would eat in the uh, hotel, two or three hour meal, go off to the adjoining bar, American, have an 80 year old Mark de Bourgogne. They would fill a glass for you. It was 80 years old, maybe it was 10 bucks. And you'd be sitting there next to a fellow who turned out to be a postman from Liverpool. Because in those days, Burgundy hadn't turned into an asset. The wines weren't collected. There wasn't a big demand for the vineyards, for the chateau. The uh, producers hadn't become celebrities. It was just a place where normal people like ourselves, because we were passionate about the food, the wine, the people, the culture, could visit. I, I got so uh, excited about the Burgundian experience. I, I didn't want to grow grapes. I didn't want to collect wines, but I wanted to be part of it. And I almost bought a chateau in a rural town there. It was extraordinary. I, I remember once being uh, down south, maybe around Volnay, and we ran into a vigneron who made some wine of his own. In those days, uh, mo most of the... Uh, Grapes were bought by a negociant. And he said, well, where where you been? We bought a couple of bottles from the fellow. He said, where you been? I said, well, we were, we were going up to Chambol or Vaughan Romany. And uh, he said, what's it like up there? And I realized at that point, I was still in the feudal time. The, you know, 30 miles away, and it was a foreign country. And of course, the... Uh, the experience at Romani Conti, uh, and just to put things in perspective, uh, the case of 1972, La Romani Conti, cost me the case. Are you ready for this? $220. And there was no allocation that I knew of. So uh, we, we met the young Orbert, very, very uh, you know, as a matter of fact, we, I went back there in uh, 2013. And uh, the same genteel, courteous, humble individual. And I had a great experience. I love the 1970 Le Montrachet is, to me, one of the great examples of what Chardonnay is, this nectar of the gods. And that, that's a picture of what Burgundy was like. And what I took away, and still at this time I was not uh, focused on growing grapes, what I took away was the holistic experience that going back a thousand years, you had a merging, a synthesis of people, of the land, 
you know, I just love the fact that they had their own beef. I mean, going to the market in Bonn, and uh, I, I can still taste La Mie de Champatin, just amazing goat cheese. And um, so it wasn't about scoring Parker's 98. You know, it had nothing to do with that. That didn't exist. I mean, if you've read Michael Broadbent about his early years, you know, people weren't buying the wine, you know, at auction to collect it, to hide it. They were buying it to share it, to drink it, to experience it. And that's, I drank Burgundy. And uh, when I wound up at uh, Hirsch Vineyards, that was my uh, inspiration, was to create that kind of uh, transcendental community, a integrated, self-sustaining community so it would uh, be able to withstand the traps that the analytic and material approach to life always brings. So you actually looked in a few different places for a parcel of land. You were in Oregon for a while, you were in Idaho for a while looking for pieces, and then you found something on the Sonoma Coast. Correct. Uh, In the, I guess it was the mid-70s, I guess that inner beacon of mine started to uh, send me a signal that California was uh, heading into a a direction of quantity of uh, large population and uh, diminished uh, quality of life. And where we lived in Santa Cruz was absolutely beautiful. We were on a ridge 2,200 feet a second ridge in uh, from the ocean. We were able to walk down to Davenport on the coast uh, five miles without crossing uh, any, anybody's house. But still, uh, Santa Cruz, w- which was Eden-esque, which was a bucolic, you know, very uh, pretty town, uh, was starting to become uh, more regulated. And, uh, you know, my, my expression was that the hippies of the 60s were becoming the hip wazee. And uh, it kind of ruffled my creative feathers, so to speak. So I started, uh, I went up to Idaho. I went up to Stanley, Idaho to watch uh, Evil Knievel jump over the Snake River. And Stanley's this beautiful town where the uh, salmon uh, flows into the uh, snake. And uh, I never got down to where Evil Knievel was jumping because this town of 40 people with four bars uh, captured me. I I should admit that I was something of a bar fly in those days. And the the owner of one of those bars was named uh, Dave Kirsch. And it turned out that Dave had played guitar or been a band member of with Hank Williams uh, back in the 50s. So uh, he and I hit it off, and uh, I I was just inspelled. I wanted to buy land there, but it was all owned by the the government and the fellow from Harris, Bill Harris. He had gotten in there before me and bought up most of the private land that was left, so there was nothing I could buy. And to give you a picture of what Stanley was like, 
the, the boys invited me fishing one day. So I show up at six o'clock with my fishing rod, and we're all kind of a little bleary from a, a long night in Dave's bar. But uh, when my eyelids got unglued, I noticed that I was the only person with a fishing pole. Everyone else was packing guns. So I said, what the heck are you guys up to? And they said, oh, we're, we're going to go down and uh, shoot ourselves a few salmon. So we're out there in this uh, rubber zodiac, uh, got a half gallon of old crow, and the river flows along uh, through uh, ranch land. And every now and then there's a barbed wire fence that the guy in the bow was supposed to lift up and uh, so the, uh, the boat didn't get punctured. But sure enough, uh, he started falling asleep and uh, you know here we are uh, drifting along and the boat uh, sinks. And here you got these six cowboys. You know, the, the stream at that, in that time of the year was only about uh, 12 inches deep. So we're all sitting there with guns and uh, equipment held up in the air. So, yeah, it, w- it was uh, interesting. And after, after that, I was looking in uh, Oregon and uh, Humboldt County. And one day uh, back in Santa Cruz, I saw an ad in the uh, classified section of the San Francisco Chronicle for a sheep ranch, 760 acres up on the Sonoma Coast, and that was it. So we went up there in, uh, 40 years ago in 1978, and uh, it got me. I had been looking for land elsewhere in uh, northern Marin and southern Sonoma County, but uh, this was the place. It was about an hour and a half from San Francisco, right? Uh, two hours from the Golden Gate if there's no traffic. In those days, uh, late 70s, it was more rural than the places I'd been in in Idaho. Only two hours from the city, and uh, it's near Fort Ross, uh, the old Russian settlement in western Sonoma. And there were people uh, two, three miles away didn't know that that this ridge existed. You would uh, go up Bohan Dillon Road, about three miles, and then it would turn to gravel. You had to go through five uh, livestock gates because it was all sheep and the... uh, the herders had the uh, the sheep controlled, and you come up on this ridge, fifteen hundred feet above the the ocean, visible two and a half miles away. You're in a, a redwood rainforest, absolutely pristine. They cut most of the trees, but the old redwoods on top. In those days, there was no dwelling, there was no electricity, uh, there was some marginal water. And that was about it. Uh, two years later, we added uh, 340 more acres on which there was a uh, dilapidated shack that we remodeled into a vacation home. I used to laugh and say that we didn't need windows there because the cracks in the board gave you all the, the visibility you needed. Now, at this point, I had still no... Uh, interest in growing grapes. I I wanted a quiet, peaceful place. So here I had a thousand acres. It was dirt cheap because there was no value. The coyotes were eating all the sheep and they couldn't poison them anymore. So uh, it was basically uh, 
you know, a salvaged situation. But uh, I felt, hey, a thousand acres, I'll put a fence around it, build a house in the middle, and I'll be left alone. But my drinking buddy from uh, Santa Cruz, Jim Beauregard, showed up in 1980, and uh, Jim and I uh, were neighbors in Bonnie Doom. His dad owned half of uh, Shopper's Corner, uh, carried a French cheese, artisan bread, and uh, the first uh, bottlings of uh, real wine. Uh, I, I had my first taste of Calera, I believe 1977 with Josh's first vintage, and uh, Jim carried all of those wines. So uh, we used to hang around, uh, sit out at my house, drink four or five bottles of uh, Burgundy and Riesling. So when he came up, he knew I was uh, uh, addicted to that. So we're walking around this uh, rural uh, piece of land. The sheep are milling about. We're on where our block uh, 3A Pomard Pinot Noir is now. Uh, as I said, there, there's no electricity, no structure, nothing. And there's also, there's no vineyards in the area. The Bohans, three miles down the road, had put in a couple of acres, but it was so dilapidated, I thought it had been deserted. And Jim turns to me, and uh, Jim says, look, you plant Pinot Noir here, and this will be a world-famous vineyard. And I have to say, I, several times I said, Jim, how did you know this? And, uh, you know, he Jim's the kind of guy that uh, acts and doesn't talk much. So I've never gotten an answer out of him. But what he did do was brought a thousand uh, self-rooted Pinot plants and uh, enough SO4 uh, rootstock for two acres. And uh, in the fall of 1980, we, uh, we slapped these into the ground, and that's become what we call the old vineyard. Interestingly, these self-rooted plants, which are totally vulnerable to a phylloxera, are still there. This block 3A I mentioned, which is maybe 60 yards from the old vineyard, in 1990, 10 years after we planted the the old vineyard, we put in uh, AXR and uh, Pinot on top of it. And it failed in five years. We had to take it out. So the old vineyard is uh, planted on what we found out later was an Indian campground, not a settlement. But we found endless arrowheads. So I think the uh, natural composting for who knows how many years uh, created a a fertile area that enabled the... uh, the roots to develop to the point where they could constantly regenerate themselves uh, in face of the phylloxera. Jim had said, uh, what's your other uh, favorite variety? And I said, well, Riesling. So uh, we butted the SO4 over to Riesling, and I was, I was never happy with the wine. And when I decided in uh, 88 to... Uh, quit the clothing business and take this on full time, I decided to uh, take out the uh, Riesling 
and brought it over to Pino, which introduced me to two uh, very important uh, elements. Uh, first, I'd been a follower and a drinker of uh, Ken Burnap's wines from Santa Cruz Mountain uh, Vineyard. So uh, I had arranged with Ken to take cuttings in uh, 1989 to uh, butt onto this uh, uh, rootstock. But when I went down there, he said, uh, it's not going to work. Uh, we've had a drought for several years, and the uh, shoots are just too anemic. So I called Jim. I said, what do you suggest? And he said, why don't you go see Jeffrey Patterson over at Mount Eden? So I went over there, and here, here you go, how life is, it's sort of like life has two dimensions. We can either try to figure things out and go down the, the road called cause and effect. Well, if I do this, then I can make that happen. Or we can just let our inner light steer us in its direction. Now, of course, that takes a certain amount of uh, reckless patience or foolishness. And uh, endless times I've been questioned about my sanity. But this is an example where it really worked. I show up, and I, I, I don't know who Mount Eden is. I don't know who Jeffrey Patterson is. Actually, he was... Uh, uh, maybe at that point, eight years or so into taking over there. So he had had a wealthy customer from Seattle uh, right before me, and they opened, I believe, it was the 1981 Mount Eden Pinot. And Jeffrey generously said, would you like to try it? And I just, I couldn't believe how, you know, because I had this uh, palate uh, of Burgundy's, how resonant that wine was, that I mean, it had real acidity with uh, tannins that were totally integrated. So I said, I, I want, uh, sell me the Budwood. And he said, you don't want it. It's so virused that uh, it's almost unfarmable. And, and sure enough, I think within 10 years, he had ripped it all out. And that's when I learned that the uh, Mount Eden plantings uh, by Martin Ray in the 40s had uh, come from uh, Paul Masson, who had suitcased the, uh, the vines from uh, Burgundy, I'm not exactly sure where, in 1900. So the Hirsch Mount Eden is really the grandchildren of the, these Burgundian cuttings that Masson had brought to the New World that Martin Ray had taken and that I took from, uh, from Jeffrey. Interestingly enough, when uh, he came in, uh, I think it was 2012, to take a look at uh, our ranch, I, I took him to a block, uh, 125A, which we had planted in 2002 uh, using uh, cuttings from uh, our block 7, which had been put in in uh, 92. Block 7 is heavily virused. But uh, Everardo Robledo, our vineyard manager, had selected a handful of vines that did not express the virus, didn't have much symptoms. And that provided the buds for uh, 125A, which is 0.45 acres. Planted at uh, 
seven feet by a meter. So it's like 1,815 vines per acre. So uh, I take Jeffrey over there and uh, I said, you know, here's your progeny. And we have one big problem that it throws off so much yield that we have to go in and, and whack it before the harvest to bring it into balance. And his mouth just fell open, you know, that he just couldn't get any production at all out of uh, the old Martin Ray plants. But uh, here we were getting, uh, you know, uh, two and a half, three tons an acre. Now, the other other, uh, amazing thing that happened in uh, 1989 was I I looked around for uh, field butter. And uh, Rich Thomas, who uh, taught at the Santa Rosa Junior College, really influential person, another one of these relatively unknown folks who uh, played a significant role in, in the evolution of high-quality, sensitive farming and winemaking. Uh, I had taken a viticulture course from uh, Rich, and he introduced me to Richard Smart, the author of Sunlight Into the Vine. Australian, and uh, uh, this was the book based on field trials that demonstrated that the California sprawl was counterproductive, mainly in terms of quality, but also in terms of uh, yields. And this had a tremendous uh, influence on me that would uh, carry through to this date. So California sprawl is when you have a tea trellis? And then the vines hang over and kind of like long hair over the side. And so that covers the fruit. Correct. Yeah. So basically, it allows the vine to express its uh, tendency to to vigorate. Uh, Now, remember, uh, vines uh, genetically are riparian. They uh, grow up in river bottoms and are climbers. They'll climb 30, 40 feet up trees. So the vines themselves have no interest in producing world-class Pinot Noir. They're uh, flowering and uh, maturation function is just to regenerate themselves, to produce enough seeds that uh, will fall on the ground or mainly that birds will carry off and uh, create new vines. So uh, growth... And photosynthesis is their primary motivation, because without a green leaf and uh, photosynthate, they're just not going to survive. So it becomes uh, a real uh, test for the farmer to try to balance the two aspects of the phrenology, the uh, annual cycle of of, uh, vine uh, development between the growth and uh, pollination phase, and then the sizing, maturation, and and harvest phase. And to bring those two into balance is the supreme supreme test. So Averado Robledo showed up in in, uh, response to my call for uh, uh, grafting these... uh, Riesling vines. He he was, uh, I think, 19 then, 1989. And so anyway, we uh, 
put the Mount Eden uh, Budwood onto the SO4 in Averado State. I, I needed somebody to uh, become the vineyard manager, help me out. Averado's one of eight uh, Robledo boys. Uh, their father was a master butter from Mexico, uh, lived in Napa, and he taught his sons uh, field budding. Uh, Averado's the youngest of, of the eight. What we did was to take the VSPs, it's called vertical shoot positioning, and turn it into an instrument, into a tool. And based on the soil type, the aspect, the direction of the sun, and the slope, the depth of the topsoil, we have the ocean two and a half miles away. So a uh, heavy marine influence. We're in the redwood rainforest. Back, you know, even 50 years ago, they were getting 100, 120 inches average a year. There was unbridled logging and uh, massive overgrazing by sheep. And this, with the rain, created a tremendous erosion. I mean, if we can find 18 inches of topsoil, that's a lot. We're surrounded by rivers. So there's a riverine influence, which, which has a surprising influence on the weather, especially in the summer. When you go down to the river and the creeks, which surround the, the ridge, uh, you'll find a completely different uh, flora. You know, there are maples and yews and more ferns. There used to be uh, steelhead and bass in those streams. The old timers said that there were fishing holes down 30, 40 feet. And you're lucky now to, to find three feet. So all the topsoil uh, eroded and left us uh, farming on the subsoils of the San Andreas, which is uh, a mere one mile away. Now, in addition to the marine rainforest and uh, riverine influences, we have what I call the continental climate. When the winds come out of the uh, south and east, we're basically exposed to the same weather pattern as the four corners, you know, where New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and Utah meet. So we can have triple-digit temperatures. It's unusual, but we can get those in the summer. Or we can have snow in May. So this is the uh, complexity. The, the weather, well, the best way to describe the weather is that there's no climate. It, it verges on chaos. You know, you can say there's certain parameters. If we have a drought, we get 30 or 40 inches. The average, I think, now is 60 to 80. We had 100 inches uh, in 2017. Uh, 2018, uh, we got 42 inches, but uh, definitely not as much as uh, we were receiving uh, 50 to 100 years before. The uh, temperature spectrum uh, seems to have changed a lot, and not so much that it's getting warmer. It's just the diurnal differences. It seems to be warmer at night, which is really important. Uh, the vines grow more at night than they actually do during the day. 
And uh, the ability of the soil to retain moisture is inhibited if the nighttime temperatures uh, don't get down around 50, 55. So uh, in 2017 especially, uh, we were concerned about night temperatures rising up. Um, Wind is very important where we are, especially during bloom time when the uh, the flowers come out and the vines self-pollinate themselves. So any extreme weather, especially hail or heavy rain or brisk winds, will uh, blow off the delicate flowers. So our springtime weather is, is uh, you know, make, makes us... Uh, farmer anxious but the overall uh, experience of farming there is the emphasis becomes to pay attention day in and day out and not rely on some constant pattern you really have to be on your toes so over the years Averon and I have developed uh, our own farming practice, which is called Farming for Balance. And it was this that took us from the early days of me being uh, head educated and him being field educated to uh, come to the uh, realization that we had to be educated by the site, that the site was our teacher, and that the soils, the plants, the weather they would give us the instruction and answer our questions. Because up until then, this was the first 10 years, we talked a lot, but we, uh, we communicated very little. This all happened in 1998, which was uh, the year of El Nino. And since then, we don't talk very much anymore, but we sure communicate. In uh, 2000, after going through this uh, near disaster of 98, we decided that we're now potential graduates from kindergarten in uh, the extreme Sonoma Coast College. So we would uh, write a thesis, and the thesis would be to plant 25 new acres of Pinot and a little bit of Chardonnay, too. So I mentioned this to uh, Helen Turley, who whose Marcus in Vineyard joins us. And uh, she laughed and said, you know, John and I were just thinking the same thing, that we brought all this baggage up here, and it took a while to realize that we don't want to forget what we've learned elsewhere, but if you just try to apply it one-to-one here, it doesn't work. So these days you have about 70 acres of vines, and you have it divided up into numerous different blocks. That's correct. We um, learned from uh, exhaustive soil uh, surveys uh, starting in uh, 2001 that it was uh, absolutely important to identify the soil types and to try to map out their boundaries. When we planted uh, Field 12 in 2002, all of 5.6 acres we wound up with 12 distinct blocks. as two varieties, Chardonnay and Pinot, and uh, five different clones in there. 
and it's all, all based on uh, soil type, the highly varying slopes, and the different aspects. The influence of the light and the depth of the soil because of the uh, slope and aspect has a dramatic uh, influence on the growth and uh, maturation of the, the vines and the fruit. Now, all of this really came about because of our experience in 1998 when it, we got 150 inches of rain during the El Nino year. And uh, Block 7, which adjoins uh, Block 12, on which we had planted uh, uh, the Mount Eden clone in uh, 1992, was we found out a, a serpentine site, uh, which means the magnesium content was uh, close to or greater, in, in this case, greater than the calcium. Uh, generally, you want a ratio of 68% calcium and 12% magnesium. So uh, the uh, soils couldn't uh, pass through the water in Block 7 were super saturated. In other words, the, the soil couldn't absorb any more water. It may be for four to five months. So the, uh, there was no growth of uh, new root hairs through which the vines take up uh, nutrient. And even the, uh, the stronger roots, the older roots, began to uh, mildew and atrophy. It looked like the vines were going to die. And our inclination was to rip it out. And just before we, we fired up the D8, to take the field out, I got the idea that maybe, maybe we should try to learn something from restoring it. And this, this was a blessing. At that time, uh, Lucy Morton uh, happened to visit us. And uh, she gave us some ideas of how we might deal with the soil and uh, help bring the vines back to life. Basically, what we did was. Uh, get a cat, a tractor, and put a single shank on it and run the cat down the vine row as close as we could get and break off all of the old roots. And at the same time, we uh, did a soil analysis, which uh, showed us how much magnesium there was. So we, we put on a tremendous amount of gypsum, and uh, gypsum is... Uh, calcium sulfate and the sulfur will bind up with the magnesium and eventually it takes time will take off the magnesium and the calcium and we use the lime which is pretty much pure calcium so eventually we were able to bring the uh the soil in block seven to a reasonable uh component and now block seven went from being a cull to producing uh, some of the best fruit on the, on the ranch. So, and so this was what inspired us to start looking down instead of looking out to the sky and, and to the canopy. And it hooked me up with Neil Kinsey, who was a student of Albrecht, the famous agronomist from uh, the University of Missouri. And Neil... Uh, who goes around the world uh, teaching agronomy and has a, uh, a service of uh, 
analyzing soil samples and then giving you recommendations for uh, fertilizing and, and mainly soil amendments. So he, he's been a tremendous inspiration and help to us over the last 20 years. And uh, we, we don't even plant a garden anymore without sending the samples off to Kinsey. And that's how we came up with the concept of farming for balance, that we, we need to balance the activity of the root zone with the uh, production of the canopy. And it was interesting. As I became an amateur agronomist, I started looking into the uh, hormonal chemistry of grapevines and learned that these hormones adjust to each other. They work in, uh, in unison together. And if you can stimulate them in a holistic way, you can then motivate the vine to, for example, uh, stop growing, stop translocating its photosynthate into the growing tips and to move it into the flowers, which will help promote a stronger and more effective uh, pollination and grape set and, and good yield. The same thing during verasion, when the vines are starting to, to ripen, by stressing the roots just a little bit, not extremely, you'll uh, release abscisic acid. And the acid will go up into the uh, growing shoots, and that'll uh, stop the uh, shoots from growing, limit the amount of hedging you have to do, and translocate the photosynthesis down into the berries so that your uh, crop can start to mature in a, in a highly qualitative way. Do you see a ratio for how high the canopy should be that's based on how deep the roots are or are those two things related or the uh, it's not so much uh, a linear ratio it's uh, a function of the overall vigor the strength of the vine the vitality so what we try to do now is instead of having uh, very dense plantings we thought the optimum for a while was, say, a meter by, well, not a meter, because that's, that's not what they do in Burgundy. That's not practical. But maybe uh, a meter by six feet in the tractor row. But because of the high variation of our soil types and the uh, impact of the slope and aspect, some of the vines in a given field will be more vigorous than others. So we're now going out to four and even five feet and trying to be as narrow as possible. Unfortunately, the side hill effect uh, makes it too dangerous to get too narrow. So seven feet and eight feet is about as narrow as we can get without the tractors uh, uh, having the danger of running into the vines. But having uh, more of the uh, space where the uh, canes can be uh, pruned based on the vigor of the vines is very helpful. So by leaving more buds or less buds, we're able to balance out the vigor to the strength of the roots. This has been one of the uh, results of constant uh, attention to uh, each vine and not bringing a generic uh, formula 
that, oh, we're going to handle this block in one way. It's really a a vine-by-vine experience. You do a bottling based on east side and west side and then a joining of those two and a different bottling. So what's the difference between east and west and the Hirsch property? Oh, quite a bit. The east side, the the east ridge, is made up of primarily uh, uh, two of the oldest blocks. William Salyam used to get those. And we, t- we took them over in 2002, and um, actually, I, I let uh, the new uh, owners of William Salyam, uh, Dyson, uh, he kept a couple of the, uh, the sub-blocks there for until 2016. Uh, uh, so the soils there are more of a sandy loam with uh, maybe 20%, 30% uh, rock content. And a, and a moderate amount of clay. Uh, whereas when you get onto the West Ridge, we're looking at a higher clay content. We, we have the block seven with a extremely high clay, and then block six, which uh, contains uh, 114, uh, most of which goes to uh, Ted Lemon at Litteri. And then there's uh, about 0.6 acres of pomard and uh, three acres of the uh, swine clone. So th- those are uh, more of a 30-40% clay, less uh, sand, and uh, uh, not as much rock as we have over on the East Ridge. And the wines are really radically different. You can really see vintage after vintage uh, the difference between the two. Now, in the middle, we have more of a lower rock content, a more sandy, uh, moderate clay. These are the blocks that get extreme influence from the ocean. We're on the second ridge in from the coast nearby, but the, the first ridge has a gap that faces uh, the middle of our vineyard. So uh, these... Uh, Fields tend to ripen later, and they're a mix of Pomard and Mount Eden. So they have a, another expression where the wines have a little bit more depth, a little bit more fruit forward, and uh, they have a definite uh, finish, a definite tannic and acidic component. When you change the proportion of sand and loam to clay, how does it read in the glass as different? From a farming perspective, the clay is the great holder of uh, water until it dries out, and then it becomes a hard pan. So late in the, in the season, especially during a hot ripening time, it needs more irrigation. How it's reflected in the glass is more dependent on the clones that we elected to put in. One of the things that seems to be true for California is that some of the key growing areas are defined by cloud cover that blocks out some of the sun. You're so high up that you're above that cover. How does that affect the conditions of Hirsch? At 1,500 feet, what's most important is we're above the summer fog. You know, as Mark Twain put it, the uh, coldest winter I ever experienced was summer in San Francisco. And that's because from uh, June 
until uh, October or September. Every day you have morning fog, comes up to about six, eight hundred feet at the most. And at fifteen hundred feet, we're free of that. So we're pretty much a desert during the summer. Uh, we get almost no rain, and there's very minimal uh, cloud cover. And our our biggest uh, concern would be sustained heat waves. That area that you're in at one point was covered in trees. So sometimes people say when you have long-term tree influence, you also have long-term changes to the pH of the soil. When we uh, started, one of the uh, first uh, viticultural uh, agronomists was named Bob Artemolin, another fellow uh, relatively anonymous who made a significant contribution to uh, viticulture in our area. Uh, he couldn't believe the uh, samples he took. Uh, we had pHs down in the high fours. Uh, maybe to pick a number, the average was 5.3 or 5.4. There was one field, block six, uh, before we planted it. I mean, the, the thistles wouldn't grow in that block. And I, I believe we put like 20 to 30 uh, tons of... Uh, of lime per acre on that field before we planted, and then a lot afterwards. So being in the uh, Redwood and Douglas fir uh, forest, you know, eons and eons of, uh, of fir uh, composting and with, with rain having a negative charge, uh, definitely uh, we're, we're in a very acidic environment. So you had a long-term drought in the 80s and into the mid-90s, and then you had a lot of rain in 98. Our, our most serious drought recently, actually, was, uh, was it 2012 through uh, 16. Uh, the earlier droughts in the late 80s, early 90s didn't really affect us much at all. I do remember uh, in 1991, when I had planted uh, 14 acres, in the 80s, we had the three acres of the old vineyard. And then in 1990, uh, Averard and I put in 14 and a half acres, uh, basically on that mid uh, area we call now the Ration uh, Ridge. And it didn't rain in uh, the end of uh, 90 and into 91. And I went down to uh, my neighbor, George Charles, who had been up there since the late 30s. and. Uh, I said, George, has it ever not rained? And uh, George kept scrupulous records. And uh, he dug up and said, oh, yeah, yeah, back in uh, 39, uh, it didn't rain until February, and then it just uh, descended on us. And the same thing happened in 91. So even in the, the recent drought years, when the, the rest of the state and the county have suffered, we still get 30, 35 inches of rain. And uh, we put in uh, a large reservoir years ago and then a small one as more as a feeder tank. So we, we've never run out of irrigation water. Who were you selling fruit to in the first days? We started uh, having a merchantable crop in the mid early 90s. And uh, Kendall Jackson had been our first uh, 
customer, the Stone Street, got most of the fruit. And then in 1995, within a month, three uh, interesting uh, winemakers showed up on my doorstep. Burt Williams, Steve Kistler, and Ted Lemon. And uh, they had all uh, started to get interest in, in our area. And we began selling all three of them fruit in 95. 95 was a bumper crop, and Bert had more fruit than he could have handled. So he sold some of mine to uh, Chris Whitcraft. So Chris was with us for five or six years. And uh, Ted uh, is still with us. And uh, uh, Steve Kessler moved on uh, in 2006. So he was taking the Chardonnay and gave it up then. So what are those three people like, Bert Williams, Ted Lemon, and Steve Kessler? Uh, Bert and, and Ed, Ed Selyam, his partner, they were relatively hands-off. They would give me some general direction. Because you have to remember, in the 90s, I, I really, I was trapped in that hubristic cage of thinking I knew something and you know it didn't take until 98 to to me to realize how ignorant I was but Bert and Ed were were pretty much uh, standoffish Uh, Steve he he needed to control everything and uh, uh, Ted was kind of in between he had uh, of course learned his uh, lessons in Burgundy and uh, was was completely committed to the cool climate sites in Anderson Valley and, and uh, the extreme Sonoma Coast. So he had, he had his points of view, uh, which, which have continued to evolve. But it, it was a tremendous benefit uh, working with the three of them. And actually it was, took five or six years for us to realize that their influence, their help in the farming was starting to wane. And that was one of the reasons we decided to build the winery. Bert Williams said, hey, why don't you plant Chardonnay? And then Steve Kistler gave you some ideas to how to trellis that Chardonnay. What happened with uh, the uh, Chardonnay field, the, uh, I had fallen in love with Nebbiolo and had the cockamamie idea of putting uh, Nebbiolo in this uh, very steep, 45% slope with a really good rock content. And Bert got wind of it and uh, invited me out to dinner. And I walk into the restaurant and this bear-like voice comes growling at me from the back. You plant Chardonnay and I'll buy it. So that was it. He uh, got Joe Rocchioli to sell me the cuttings, which was uh, another interesting experience about canopy management. Because uh, Joe Chardonnay, which was which uh, his son Tom was making amazing uh, wine out of, it was like the Amazon back in there. We 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 went in there with machetes. I mean to fight our way through the canopy. But uh, uh, Joe had gotten uh, his cuttings from Hansel, which of course uh, came from Wenty. And in my opinion, uh, this is really. Uh, the best uh, plant material for a California Chardonnay on, on good sites. So we put that in in 95, and uh, 
Bert made only one vintage, 97, and then they, they sold the company. And uh, Bob Cabral, who took over at William Salyum, uh, did the next three years. At which point, uh, I took it away and gave it to uh, Steve, which was, you know, seemed to me uh, the place where uh, it belonged. And we were out there one day. Uh, it, w- it was a single trellis. And Steve said, you know, you have way too much vigor here, especially on the downhill side where, of course, the soil is deeper. He said, why don't you split the uh, canopy? Why don't you have uh, four cordones instead of two? So we did it. And uh, I think it was an interesting uh, result for Steve, who was into a minimal uh, yield, uh, thinking he would get more intensity and evenness. But we uh, doubled the yield, and the quality went way up. Uh, the Kistler 2002 Hirsch Chardonnay was a remarkable wine. So in the early 2000s, you decided you wanted to make wine from your grapes as opposed to just selling the grapes. Averard and I felt that having a winery in the middle of the vineyard would give us immediate and uh, focused input back into the farming. And at the same time, we wanted to plant these 25 acres, and money was an issue. My, my uh, impression that Burgundy in the 70s was still back in the medieval period was not much different in a way in Sonoma. It was very difficult to uh, get people to pay more for the fruit because unconsciously, they felt that the winemaking was the important component and it was responsible for the value being added and so basically they they had this many feudal kind of attitude that the growers were sort of like the serfs and the vassals so the bottom line was i needed some money and uh i realized that while the wealth is in the land the cash is in the bottle so those those three factors pushed me to to build the winery. Our first vintage was in uh, 2000. Uh, Vanessa Wong from Pei was our uh, consulting winemaker. We didn't have a facility done, so we made it off-site. It was 640 cases. And mainly, I I took it from the William Salyum blocks, which was the Pomard in Block 5, uh, Mount Eden in... Uh, 4B, and uh, some pomard from Block 8. In 2003, uh, we built the winery, and that's our winery to this day. So we hired a fellow named uh, uh, Mark Doherty, and uh, Mark stayed with us until 2009. In 2010, uh, we were very uh, lucky to have Ross Cobb come to work for us. He had been at Flowers, and we, we were pretty close. Uh, Coastlands, his father's vineyard, uh, also sold fruit to William Salyum. Uh, Ross left in uh, 2015, and in 2016, Anthony Filiberti joined us. He's the winemaker at Ant Hill Farms, and he had been at Canez. Uh, he he uh, navigated the 2017 harvest 
when the temperatures went up to 105 at the crush pad. And uh, he's totally unflappable. As an entire ranch, as a unity, I know there's different parts of it, a lot of different blocks. But do you see a signature to the Hirsch fruit in terms of the Pinot? Oh, yeah. Uh, on the fruit side, the, the most dramatic taste would be the, the blend of uh, soft and uh, pit fruit. In the best vintages, we'll get uh, cassis and cherry and uh, maybe even a little citrus in there. How do you feel about a question like whole cluster? Whole cluster was never uh, a friend of mine. I try to uh, dissuade Mark from using too much of it. But uh, when Ross came, you know, I, ha- I had to step aside and let the masters uh, make the decisions. So I think it's worked out. Uh, Anthony has a really good hand on it. He's been able to use the whole cluster to bring the fruit more forward, to manage the tannins. And I've been very happy with the results. So how do you approach your own wines? Do you typically wait a certain amount of time for some of the wines to open up, or do you drink them right away? Or We are facing a conundrum because uh, our wines often uh, don't open up for years. And uh, for financial and marketing reasons, we have to keep putting the wines out in the market. And often, given the vintage, like 2014, before they're really uh, close to being evolved. But it's so nice to be able to taste these wines 5, 10, 15 years down the road. I try to tell people that you really have to uh, give them an awful lot of air when they're young. So what have been some of the takeaways for you moving from grower to winery owner? So the winery is a wonderful tool and uh, absolutely necessary for what we're doing. But because I didn't take on winemaking, I wonder what would have happened if I had started in the 90s and become the winemaker. But, uh, you know, I'm 73 now. It's so important as we age to continue to grow. And uh, I think the experience of the winery has uh, put me in touch with so many more people, opened up uh, so many more vistas to uh, experience and learn from, that it's been a very healthy experience. You told me one time you thought that real balance was a blend of light and dark and not trying to overemphasize one or the other. And what did you mean by that? The wonderful character of Pinot is that it's so adaptive. So think of your own experience. If you're not open to change, you're going to have a rigid life. You're going to be conditioned, and uh, you're going to get hit by the boulders of life. If you're flexible, curious, and want to grow, well, then you're going to be able to turn the the avalanche into an opportunity. And this is exactly what I mean by the light and the dark, that the imperfections are 
what I call the ugly. These are the things that farmers who want a homogeneous experience uh, drives them nuts. And that's why Pinot has always been such a challenge. The people who have mastered Pinot have been the ones who have accepted the dark side and brought it into consonance with all of the wonderful attributes, all of the, the fruit, acid, and tannic expression of this uh, remarkable variety. And why do you think that Pinot has taken to that part of the Sonoma Coast so well? I mean, several of your neighbors have been also really successful with Pinot. So what is it about that area and Pinot that resonates? I think the, the energy of the, of the place, you know, the, the drama of the four ecosystems in the San Andreas and the presence of clay. Uh, I think clay is re- really important. And in the absence of limestone, having uh, clay with a reasonable amount of rock content to enable uh, a good root penetration is probably what makes it uh, exceptional. Now, I will say that in the, in the next 20, 30 years, that the Chardonnay is going to become more of a signature. My own humble opinion is that while there are many places to grow good Chardonnay and less places to grow good Pinot, the number of acres available to grow Grand Cru Pinot is actually larger than those available for Grand Cru Chardonnay. And I got the intuition that there are some sites out there that could grow amazing Chardonnay. So I, I would say, and we're going to put in a, another six, eight, ten acres of Chardonnay in the next few years. In 2014, you had an accident with a tractor that had some large ramifications for you. I'm now paralyzed from the chest down. So I'm be spending the rest of my life in a wheelchair. And uh, it took me two years to get back to the ranch. Uh, we had to live in Healdsburg to be close to uh, uh, medical facilities and therapy and all that. Uh, from the ranch to uh, Santa Rosa or Healdsburg is a good hour and a half. So uh, we're a little too remote for that kind of care. But uh, I found a really interesting uh, ATV. It's a track layer and uh, very stable, six feet wide, so I, I can get out to all my uh, vineyards. I was out in 4A, which is the uh, southernmost block of East Ridge, and uh, the uh, ATV is a little noisy, and I was getting ready to head home, and something um, impelled me to shut the engine off, and uh, I sat there for a while. The breeze was blowing nice clear, moderate day. And all of a sudden, I felt the vines were telling me, welcome back. And uh, I think that's really the, the story of uh, finding a place that found me. Thank you very much for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. David Hirsch is the founder and owner of Hirsch Vineyards in the Sonoma Coast of California. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose, 
and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. Prince of Pino write-up on David Hirsch was helpful to me when I was doing background research for this episode, and I would recommend that resource to you if you'd like to know more about Hirsch Vineyards. The website is princeofpino.com. People think I'm nuts, but the uh, San Andreas, the tectonic plates, are maybe, what, 70, 80 miles below us. But can you imagine... And these plates are moving, I think, northwest at a couple of hundred feet a year. The energy that these massives, the rock under the Pacific Ocean and under the North American continent, the heat, the pressure that they create by grinding together. I'm not talking about earthquakes. Just this normal, non-seismic activity. I mean... I just feel that part of the energy and focus in all our wines is a product of that.